0: Well, we do thank you guys for being here with us tonight. We have one verse to study this evening. This is Isaiah 49, verse 13. It says, Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. A few years ago, Kate and I went to the Philadelphia Art Museum. Uh, this was like day after we got married. We're killing time before catching a plane to Denver, where we were headed for our honeymoon. And I remember we were walking around, and this painting in particular really grabbed me. Uh, It's by a guy named Adolf Reinhardt, created in the 50s, I believe. We'll see on the next slide for sure. Something about this painting just reached out to me. The backstory is I'm colorblind, (laughs) so I miss a lot in art. Uh, But with this painting in particular, there's something that I, I saw that, I don't know, just, just compelled me. This is the whole painting, so you can see this is just one piece of this three-row panel there. But there's not a lot to it. The experts say this. They say, with his monochromatic canvases of the 50s and 60s, Ad Reinhardt desired to make pure paintings, evincing an art-for-art's-sake position rather than working to communicate emotion or the physical act of painting itself. This is called abstract painting blue. It exemplifies the severe style and symmetry he was able to achieve through the drastic reduction of form in favor of color. Part of a series executed between 1952 and 1953, the vertical canvas is overlaid with a three-by-three grid of rectangles rendered in blue paint. The subtle tonal variations of each square are so difficult to differentiate that the painting only reveals its composition after prolonged and focused observation. Look at it again. And from this, they get subtle tonal variations, monochromatic stuff. It's a blue painting, right? It's blue on canvas. But for some reason, that was like so beautiful to me. I went to high school where our our colors were royal blue and white. So maybe a part of me bleeds royal blue and just loves it. But part of me was entranced by that. The experts are like talking about this blue series of paintings in very detailed and very charitable language, right? So the experts say there's something going on here that maybe we're not seeing. What is it that you think about this painting? Let's hear some ideas. Let's try to be conversational tonight. What do you think of that blue painting? It's pretty. That's good. What else? Talk to me about the subtle tonal variations. <laughs> yeah, the, the blue over here... Differentiated from this blue here, that's good, thank you, Josh. What else? Okay, there's some shadowing there. Yeah, some of us might be seeing a cross, that's good. What else? Somebody say what what you're dying to say. It's blue. <laughs> I'm reading that as code for somebody gets paid for that? That hangs in a museum. My kid could do that thing, you know. For some of us, like there's there's different opinions that we have on it. I don't know what it is about that painting, but it just it gets me and it hooked me. And I remember just standing there looking at it. We've we've seen like all sorts of things in the museum. It was like Rubens and like these other folks that I don't remember because I'm not an art history guy. But like all these people that were there, the detail is so precise that it's almost like looking at a photograph. And I'm just kind of, you know, when you go to an art museum, by the ninth or tenth room, you're just like, okay, this is art. There's some painting. That's great. It's a picture. Good, good, good for it. And, like, I come into this room, and it's like, oh, <laughs> the blue, right? It's just, it's just blue. The way that we see this art depends upon the viewer, I love it. Some of you hate it. Some of you think it's stupid. Some of you don't think it's art. Some of you think that it's simplistic. Some of you think that it's cutting edge, perhaps. The first one of a kind. There's something different about it. For some of you, it's just, like we all have these different opinions on it. I think that the way we think about the Bible, the way we think about Jesus, the way that we think about even this text in Isaiah is similar to that. So we have this one verse Shout for joy, you heavens. Rejoice, you earth. Burst into song, you mountains. For the Lord comforts his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. And it's in this frame. And we, the viewer, are stepping back in front of it, looking at it, and we all have different reactions to it. Some of us buy it like that. Some of us do not buy what it says. Some of us doubt. Some of us are angry. Some of us, like we all have these different expectations and reactions to this verse. And tonight I want to just take this one verse and talk about how we view scripture and how we view the promises of God. I think that there's four reactions to this text. There's probably many more than that, but I've labeled at least four that are pretty overt, I guess you could say. The first reaction is doubt. And this has been Israel's reaction to the bold proclamations of the poet all throughout Isaiah 40 through 55. As I've been arguing since day one, 40 through 55, I'm seen as its own specific set of texts in a certain context. That context was exile. That context was people that had been driven out of the land. That was a, a context of people saying, God, are you still with us? Do you still care about us? Are you still in relationship with us? And these people had been there for so long that many of them did not have Any comprehension about Jerusalem and the temple and what used to be. All they knew was Babylon and exile. And as we've seen from the very beginning of chapter 40, where the poet says, Comfort, comfort is the message of Yahweh to these people, they came back with struggles. It's almost like they said, The message can't be right. Look at where we are. We're not in Israel anymore. God is completely removed from us. All we see are these foreign gods around us. All we see are the Babylonian oppressors over us. All we see is devastation and destruction, and we don't know anything different. And in Isaiah 40, verse 27, this is the words of that people group. It says, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Anything that he wants to do for me is no more. My cause, my right, my justice, my mishpat, that Hebrew term that we've been talking about for the past couple weeks, it's been hidden from the Lord and disregarded by him reaction is one of doubt and skepticism and disbelief and many of us tonight are in that same place when we hear about these promises we doubt for whatever reason we don't believe that god is involved or is concerned with who we are as a people we are living in the metaphorical exile where we have been removed from the land and in this place of difficulty a difficulty that i probably can't even comprehend, and we say this message that that guy at the front of the stage every week keeps saying can't be right. Look at where we are. Look at where I am. Look at where my family is. Look at what happened to them. Look at what happened to those people. Look at what's going on in the world. There can't be comfort. There can't be hope. There can't be reconciliation and restoration because it's not happening and I don't see it. And for some of you, as you look into that frame and see these words of the poet, you say, I don't buy it. And we doubt This theme has come up often over the past 16 weeks that we've been in Isaiah. I believe it comes up so much because it's embedded in the text itself. Israel is a people that was in the very core of their beings. They were doubting who God was and what he could do. But I also think there's folks in this room right now that struggle because of your circumstances, whether the ones you're living through right now or the ones that happened 10 years ago or 15 years ago or as a child or whatever. There's things that are keeping you from believing that Jesus can transform who you are. So when you come as the viewer to this painting, you look at it and you have skepticism. How do we overcome this doubt? I don't know if we do necessarily. I have one text that I would like to read to you. This is from Matthew chapter 28. Jesus, in this story, has risen from the dead and now he is standing in the midst of his disciples, his people, this is in verse 16. It says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Now this is Jesus' like, group. This is his crew. This is the people that he was so tight with. These were his folks that had followed him to the very end. It says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. I attach on to that, that phrase because There's no commentary there in Matthew that says this is a good thing or this is a bad thing. It just says they worshiped him, but some doubted. And I hold on to that because I know that in the church, oftentimes doubt is looked at with some sort of disdain as though you're not faithful enough if you have any questions or if you have these things that that keep you. I want to just at least put forth the idea that for a lot of us, that's part of the story. That's part of the journey. Don't give up yet even in the midst of a risen Savior who was right in front of them. Some worshiped and some doubted. I fully believe that for some of you, you're standing in the midst of that doubt and the words of the poet written so long ago don't ring true for you. And I want to say, hold on. I don't believe that Jesus is done with you yet. How do we overcome doubt? I don't have a good answer for that. I think that collectively, though, we carry the doubts of the people around us. In the midst of that group of disciples, some were worshiping, some were doubting, and I don't think that anyone was abandoning the ones that were doubting, but they were putting their arms around them and, and living life with them in the midst of whatever struggles they were going through, and for some of us, we desperately need others to lock arms with us and put our arms around them and, and journey with them through that difficulty. The second reaction is anger. Some of you, you've moved beyond philosophical and theological doubts. A lot, a lot of the times, people like to pontificate big thoughts about who God is and what's going on in the world. That's all well and good, but some of us have moved beyond that kind of fun-to-talk-about stuff over coffee, and we've gone into the world of bitterness and resentment and anger, and sometimes we have really good reason for that. And again, this goes back into the lives that we live. Some of you have experienced things that I can't even fathom. My life has been relatively free of of difficulty, and I can't understand where some of you have been, but I I, I know that you have good reason for being ticked off about what's going on. And you say things like, if this text is right, if it's true that God wants to comfort us and that he's going to be there for us, then do it already. Bring the comfort. You keep talking about it. Why don't you just go ahead and do it? And we have this resentment and this bitterness and this anger where we're sitting in these situations and waiting and praying and hoping and nothing happens. We just have all this animosity that builds up so that when we go into that museum where we're looking at that text, it's not just a doubt. It's a, I hate this painting. (laughs) It's terrible. It's done nothing for me. It's like we have this this emotion that drives how we respond to it. In Psalm 13, uh, we see the psalmist writing these words. This is a lament psalm. It's one of the psalms that people usually use as an example to identify a lament psalm. But the language that's used, I think, is important for us to to hear. It says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? The way that I hear the psalmist's voice is one of escalating, which just keeps getting more and more ticked. Look on me and answer. These are commands. Look on me and answer. Oh Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I'm going to sleep in death. My enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. Like the psalmist here is saying, this is my situation. You keep talking about doing something. Do it. Do it. Do it. And some of us, that's, that's exactly where we are. There's a turn in the psalm though. These last couple of verses says, in the midst of that, I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Look on me and answer. Do it. Yet I will trust you. So we have this this reaction of doubt and skepticism. We have this reaction of anger and bitterness where the things that we've gone through have perhaps been so uh, difficult that we just come at it with, with resentment and difficulty i'm going to say that anger is often due to a lack of forgiveness there's people in our lives that we need to forgive this lack of forgiveness this un- un- inability for us to forgive them is often due to a misunderstanding oftentimes when we think about what god is doing we think about him in the heavens looking over us and just kind of plodding like <laughs> it's going perfectly they are suffering and they are just like that's how we view what's <laughs> happening here right it sounds sadistic, but it's almost like that's how we view him, because he could stop anything that he wants to stop, so why doesn't he stop whatever he wants to stop? Therefore, he must just be the one who's in the sky that's looking down with a sick pleasure about what's going on here. I think that for some of us, the fact that we can't forgive God is due to a misunderstanding that that's not who he is. The scriptures talk about God as love. I fully believe That in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of oppression, in the midst of things that we go through, there's no vindictiveness by the guy in the sky. It's mourning. It's heartbreak. And for his son, it's it's partnership. It's solidarity. He has suffered like no one else. We're not alone in the midst of our suffering. We're not alone in our anger or resentment. We misunderstand who God is and what God is is doing in our lives. We also have a lack of forgiveness and this might not be geared towards our lack of forgiving God but our lack of forgiving the people in our lives that have hurt us because we're just not willing to. They made that choice. They're not worth my time. They're not worth me forgiving them in any context. Jesus has something to say about that. As he's teaching his disciples how to pray, he says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. We know that bit. Verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. The stakes are pretty high when it comes to forgiveness. And oftentimes we excuse our anger and our bitterness because we feel as though it's deserved. And scripture takes that and completely turns it on its head. Forgive those who have wronged you. If you don't, or if you're unable to forgive those who have wronged you, God won't forgive you. That's the stuff that people don't like to talk about because it's incredibly difficult. This doesn't mean that you continue to put yourself in situations where you could be open for hurt and pain, but it does mean this anger at some point has to fade away. The third reaction is hopefulness. The first two are pretty bleak. They're pretty dark. Doubt, anger, like that's how some people are are reading the text. That's how some people are engaging God. Um, and Sometimes I find myself there as well. Thankfully though, others see this frame or hear the text and it evokes hopefulness and expectation. When you look at this verse, it says, Shout for joy, you heavens, rejoice, you earth, burst into song, you mountains, for the Lord will comfort his people and will have compassion on his afflicted ones. Whatever it is that we go through, those are like the words that you're hanging on to. God will comfort. God will restore. God will be in the midst of his people again. It will happen. We haven't got to the point of doubt. We haven't got to the point of anger. We are just hanging on, waiting for God to work in a, in a ridiculous way. These people are important to be in the community because they even out the voices of doubt and skepticism and anger. They're the voices that need to be raised on a weekly basis, They're the voices that offer a different way, a different path, one that sees Christ and allows him to do his restorative work. For those of you that step back in the museum and see those words and focus on the he will comfort his people, he will have compassion, we need you. Desperately, we need you. We need you to be vocal. We need you to be engaged. We need you to be excited. We need you to be the hands and feet of Jesus in our midst. I believe that this response is us as a church. We talk about it every week. Through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, God is restoring. He's doing something. He's restoring humanity to himself, individuals to each other, and creation to its original design. That's what we believe. But oftentimes, we say this through lament. We say this through clenched teeth and clenched fists. We say this through, I'm hanging on like the psalmist who says, yet I will trust you in the midst of difficulty. We need this hope where we believe that Jesus does stuff. We need to see it as well. This goes into the fourth thing where the fourth reaction could be celebration. And I think that this reaction has been lost in, in the shuffle over the last couple months. And I think this is my fault. As we've been studying Isaiah, I've been talking mostly about doubt and mostly about skepticism and mostly about just these, these deep-seated issues that we have that keep the barrier between us and God But this text could also be read as, for the Lord has comforted his people. It's been done. It's already happened. It's not just, we'll wait for comfort, but it's it's already taken place. There's things in our community where we've seen God comforting us, where we've seen God be active in our midst, where we've seen God do ridiculous things over the last eight months. I think we need to celebrate those things. We get so caught up in the headiness of, of all of this. And yeah, we have questions, and yeah, we have doubts, and I don't want to diminish those. I have my own, and I'm sure most of you do too. But in the midst of it, don't lose sight of the blue canvas, <laughs> the, the different ways that we view this, right? At some points in life, you might be seeing that, saying, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. At some points, you don't want to look at this or any other piece of art at all. At some other points, you might question, like, why is this so good? At other points, you might have some anger. I could do that. Why am I not rich? You know? I think the same thing is true with the text and God's promises, where we hear that he has comforted us, that he will have compassion for us. And the lens and the frame through which we see that at times varies I hope that as a people, regardless of where we are in the journey and regardless of how we see those words and how we receive them, that we can unite. Bearing one another's burdens, loving one another with a Christ-like love of sacrifice and humility, allowing people to be in different stages where they say, I have real big questions because of this. And we don't shove them under the rug and say, oh, God has a plan for all the people that he loves, so you should get over it. Like, where we allow people to be in the midst of that psalmist moment where they say, if you're going to talk about doing something, then do it, and do it now, because I'm dying here. Locking arms with the people who are excited about Christ and just come in beaming every week and uniting with the people that have a little bit more weight on their shoulders. Understanding that Jesus, through his life and his death and his resurrection, is in the process of restoring people. In the process of restoring fractured relationships, maybe amongst us. Maybe amongst your family. Maybe amongst the people that you don't want to forgive. And that he's doing a work in the world as well. And we get to see it. There's something different, I guess you could say, as being the people that are viewing this piece of art, we have like a cheat sheet where we kind of know what's going on as we're viewing it. In the same way as Christians, regardless of the things that we bring to that, that moment, Jesus is the one that trumps it all. Jesus is the one that allows us to see it for what it is. Jesus is the one who gives us those moments of pure and utter honesty and allows us to keep walking on the journey. I don't know where you are tonight. I don't know what it is you're dealing with. I don't know what reaction you have to scripture and the gospel and Christ. But I want to encourage you in that he's not done with you yet and that there's movement and that there's hope. There's peace. There's beautiful reconciliation and restoration through Christ. And that should be celebrated.